Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John. John chapter 2, beginning with verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what signs do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Father, we ask with great fervor that you would produce in us a like-mindedness that can only come from the power of your Spirit through the reading and the explanation of your Word, that we would receive it eagerly, not as the Word of men, but in fact as the Word of God. And we ask this for Christ's glory. Amen. In our passage this morning, three times, Jesus displays his deity. And I believe that the purpose for the display of his deity these three times is that you and I would believe. You know that when you genuinely believe something, something else happens. Jesus says, out of the mouth speaks the heart. So the convictions, the heart attitudes, that which is important, the internal desires are displayed in your conduct, in your speech. You know, where you pour your life, it shows where your heart really is. The power of Jesus' deity in his righteousness with his Father is displayed in verses 12 through 17. Verse 12 says, After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, this may seem insignificant, but Capernaum is an interesting place for Jesus to go after his first miracle being done in Cana of Galilee. Capernaum is about 16 miles from Galilee. It's not too far. But it is where Jesus performed many miracles. And in Matthew eleven twenty three, he says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus took his family and his disciples to Capernaum, this land, this small town, where he would perform more miracles than he would anywhere else. So it's interesting. Sometime after, shortly after performing his first miracle, he goes there, spends a few days with his family. There's a reason that this little multiple-day trip to Capernaum is significant, and that is that he takes with him two categories of people. Believers and unbelievers. Disciples who've chosen to follow him and family who don't much have choice but to follow him. The believers are likely those recorded for us by John as those who are his disciples, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and John. But also Jesus' brothers. 
And as late as John 7, verse 5, after his brothers have observed him perform many miracles, John says of them, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. His biological half-brothers, they didn't believe him. Jesus rejects their counsel to him to leave Galilee and go to Judea so his disciples could see the miracles they had seen. Jesus had a better plan. On Matthew 12, verse 46, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus displays a lack of idolatry of his family. For some, family is, man, that's it. I remember years ago when I was a young Christian, just getting to know people in the church and uh, spending time with this guy. And he said to me, man, don't mess with my family. And he wasn't really saying that to me. He was just kind of making a statement. You don't mess with my family. He said, you know, you mess with my brother, you mess with me. You mess with my dad, you mess with my brother, you mess with me. It was, this whole, it was all about family. These were Christians. But it's not unusual for family to rise above the body of Christ in our modern Christian evangelical culture. In some cases, in particular with what some might call Christian parenting, there's a lack of willingness to discipline children because it has been determined to be unloving to do so. So the conduct of the children has substantial impact on the body of Christ. Train them up in the way of the Lord, and they will not depart from it. Rear your children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. One of the most troubling things to me in the body of Christ is a man who won't seek counsel, in particular with regard to his children, especially men with young children. And the result is that his children grow older. He has no control over them, not really. And so his pseudo-devotion to the body of Christ, but his passionate devotion to his family actually results in a failure of both. Jesus was devoted to both. But he says in Matthew 10, 35, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is critical to your eternal life. It's not to say that if you love Jesus Christ, you can't love your family. Quite the contrary. 
Jesus determined to spend this time not only with his family, but really his life was devoted to his disciples. Such that there was a division. Brothers and sisters, if that division never takes place in your life, you simply must question the level of your effectiveness. If your devotion to Christ doesn't display a distinction between you and your false convert family members, if you will be faithful, it will. But I can think of more than a handful of situations, even in our local church, where a willingness to display a love for Christ has resulted in the necessity of explaining to one's parents or family members My devotion to God and Christ and to the body is such that I must help you deal with your sin. You profess to know Christ, but it would certainly seem quite clear that you do not. Those conversations, friends, are not just difficult and in some cases critical. They're fundamental to the Christian faith. It's evangelism. You know, Who of you in this room has not struggled in your devotion to Christ as Christ sanctifies you and nurtures in you a love for throwing off sin and putting on Christ has not been concerned about the idolatry of family members who claim to know Christ? Of course you're concerned about it. The question is, what do you do about it? You've got to be saturated in fellowship in the body of Christ. It's not just about hanging out. Truly, it is about seeking counsel in the wisest and most humble of contexts. While there was a clear division between these two categories of people in Jesus, he purposed to minister to them in the same context and with the same lifestyle. Your discipleship and your evangelism have tremendous overlap. Why? Because your life devoted to Christ is going to look very much the same in both contexts. If you're devoted to holiness, your family is going to see it as that which is ridiculous, and your believing body members are going to see it as encouraging, contagiously edifying. But you're doing the same thing. Jesus was committed first to his disciples such that it resulted in a division, but also to unbelievers who would continue to listen and follow. So long as they would listen, he would deliver truth to them, but they always misunderstood it and always argued against it. Jesus said, do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. See, this devotion to unbelievers had a line. There was a point of division. There was a point at which ministering particularly to the unbeliever who professed to be a believer, who deliberately walked in two worlds. You know, you've heard it before, one foot in the world, one foot in the church. Jesus drew a line with that. He said, do not give to dogs what is holy. And that's right after he had said, Do not judge lest you be judged. And then he calls you to judge. There are those who trample on the holiness of God, claim to know Christ, and yet 
the deep, dark reality of their life is that there's no devotion to anything Christian. It's all a facade. Well, verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, the Passover means just that, Passover. In case you forget what it means, think first of Passover. In Exodus 11, verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So God instructed every household in Israel to slaughter a one-year-old male lamb and to take the blood of that male lamb and to wipe it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they ate. They were to roast it, eat it, along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. I will not share my glory. Pharaoh, in his hard-heartedness, received a sealing of that hard-heartedness from God. God's patience has a line. God's patience has a limit. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why? Because Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. Talk about massive opportunity to repent in the face of a clear and real message from the Lord. Pharaoh was hearing directly from God through Moses, and he rejected it. Hardened his heart. So what did God do? Fine. You want your heart to be hard? I'll harden it. This is what happened. So God instructed every household in Israel to wipe the blood of the lamb on the doorpost so that the executioner would pass over that family and not execute the firstborn. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you. And when I strike the land of Egypt, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And so it was commanded of Israel in chapter 23 of Exodus and chapter 16 of Deuteronomy to maintain this practice, the Passover. It is a symbolization or a pre-shadowing of the death of the Lamb of God. And so Jesus obeyed. Jesus obeyed this command. Three times a year, Deuteronomy 16, 16 says, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. This involves the Passover. Jesus always obeyed God's law. He purposed to disobey the legalistic additions to the law required by the Pharisees, but he always obeyed his father's words, his commands. Matthew 5.17 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It is not true that Jesus violated the law of God. On the Mount of Transfiguration, you see this affirmation of Jesus. He was speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified, because this was, in fact, the God-man. His deity proven, his deity expressed in God himself declaring, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Verse 14, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. Now the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that there were more than likely approximately 250,000 animal sacrifices made during the time of the Passover. 250,000, a quarter million so we're not talking about what you might have imagined. Maybe you've seen something in a movie or maybe even read something. It kind of gives you the idea that what's going on in the temple is some kind of small gathering, a few animals here and there, and Jesus runs them out. 250,000 in the context of a matter of just a few days. Jesus determines to run them all out. He found them selling oxen, sheep. Pigeons. I mean, don't imagine, you know, a couple oxen, a few sheep, thousands of animals, thousands and thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of people there for the purpose of the Passover, there for the purpose of sacrificing their own spotless animals. Now, many years earlier, the prophet Isaiah, as recorded in chapter 1, verse 11 of the book of Isaiah, said, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool." If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Even well before 
the Lord has spoken in Isaiah. King Saul had disobeyed God and attempted to cover over his sin with meager efforts to satisfy God with actions that were too little and too late with a misguided animal sacrifice. And Samuel's response to Saul's efforts to cover over his sin with an animal sacrifice was this. Listen to Samuel's indictment, his declaration of Saul's condemnation. He says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Personally, I think one of the saddest statements in the whole Bible. Here's Saul, king of Israel. At the request of Israel, the Lord complies against his better judgment. Fine, you want an earthly king? You no longer want me, your ultimate and perfect theocrat? Here you go. Could have turned out a lot worse than it had up to this point, but Saul, in his disobedience, oh, but his willingness to go back and attempt to cover over his disobedience with some effort to appease God, and probably more so Samuel, Samuel says, you're not king anymore. Strips him of the specific blessing that God in his sovereignty had granted him. Our passage tells us that in the context of this willingness to continue with a bad heart attitude, but a seeming external compliance with the sacrificial system, that there were money changers also in the temple. There would have been people from different lands and different currencies, so the religious leaders made a very profitable business out of exchanging different currencies for an unreasonable profit. It was highway robbery. People had to be there. They had to offer a sacrifice. Had they brought their own sacrificial lamb, goat, dove, it very likely would have been rejected by the hypocritical, pharisaical, false leaders who would have found some way to make money off of them. So they may as well have left their own blameless, spotless animals at home and purchased those when they arrived in Jerusalem. So doing, they're feeding the cash cow that the Pharisees had established. They would have been required to purchase animals in the temple if they had not brought their own. They would have been required to exchange money to use the currency required in Jerusalem. So, verse 15, making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And in this, you see the power of Jesus' deity in his righteousness with his father. The unrighteous conduct of the business dealings in the temple would infuriate Jesus. But this was just the symptom. The sale of animals for exuberant profit, the exchange of money for exuberant profit, just a symptom. It's a sinful one, but it's, it's a symptom. The real problem? It's a problem of the heart. 
And it was the unrighteous system that invoked the righteous anger of the Lord. The unrighteous system that the Pharisees had implemented by misusing and abusing the sacrificial system. What were they doing? They were doing it all for profit and fame and power. And so doing, Jesus chose to be angry and not sin. As you see, Paul command even of us in the book of Ephesians, be angry and do not sin. He says to them, you've made my father's house a house of trade, a house of business. It's a place of worship, and you've made it a marketplace. Later in Matthew 21, when he will again cleanse the temple a second time, he says to them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers, thieves, stealing from people. That's where we get the term highway robbery. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The disciples would have known by now at least enough Old Testament theology that they would have remembered David's words from Psalm 69. David says in verse 9, For zeal for your house has consumed me when Jesus cleansed his father's house, when he ran out the unrighteousness in his righteous anger and his devotion to his father's righteousness, which he shared with his father, the disciples remembered the statement from David in the Old Testament, zeal for your house has consumed me. This was the boldness of Jesus to be zealous for his father's house, to be committed to that temple which was designed specifically to be a place of worshiping God when the people would gather for the purpose of exalting him. And the unrighteous business efforts of the religious leaders of the day became the target. But not just the conduct, it was the system. It was a belief in one's own works. That's what Jesus was attacking. And what's he angry about? He's angry about false religion that ushers people into false conversion. An unbearable yoke. What do you do with an unbearable yoke? If you're convinced that that yoke is what's required of you, you pretend to bear that yoke. You do everything you can to convince others who have convinced you that they are bearing that yoke, that you too are bearing that burden, that yoke. Well, what was the result of Jesus' efforts? They were driven out. They left. The animals, those sacrificing the animals, he cleared the house. There would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of one to two million people in Jerusalem at the time. How would this have been possible for one man to clear the temple where tens of thousands of people were gathered for the purpose of sacrificing animals? This was no human effort. This was a display of his deity. The strength that only God can muster, the strength that only God has to grab a couple of cords would not have been a big deal. The animals would have been tied up with cords. So he grabs a few of them, he makes a whip, he swings it around and he runs everybody out and it's a miracle. Humanly speaking, any small handful of men could have grabbed him had it only been a human effort. 
This was a deified, spirit-filled effort on the part of the God-man to display his power of deity in his righteousness, his passion for holiness. Well, second, I want you to see the power of Jesus' deity in his resurrection from the dead. Verse 18 says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. He was speaking about the temple of his physical body, but this would be a foreshadowing of his spiritual body. Ephesians 2, 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What was the house of God, the temple, would be destroyed in 70 A.D., no more to be rebuilt. doesn't exist to this day. What is the house of God? Well, the text here says Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body, prophesying his death and resurrection. He tells them, you destroy it, it'll be raised up in three days. Of course, they think he's talking strictly about The house of God, the building itself, the building would be destroyed in 70 A.D., never to be rebuilt, but the body, the house of God, the temple of God, being ultimately Jesus, would be raised up in three days. And the figurative and yet very real body of Christ is that in which every member of the church of Jesus Christ is a critical member. And this is the power of Jesus' deity in his resurrection from the dead. This is why we have said in our member affirmation that without the resurrection, you do not have the gospel. In 1 Peter 4 Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing what is good. Peter is saying here that the judgment of God begins with the household of God. Who is the household of God? It's the church. So there must be a judgment. When we have the Lord's table, nearly without fail, we go through 1 Corinthians 11 to point out the reality that the person who takes the Lord's table while maintaining a devotion to unrepentant, unconfessed sin is bringing God's condemnation upon himself. And so the call is to judge and to be judged, to judge self, but also to be judged by the body. Why? To avoid condemnation. That's what Paul says. To avoid the condemnation of the world. So what Jesus is pointing to here with this declaration that if you destroy it, it will be raised up in three days, is the reality that the resurrection results in that which displays who the household of God actually is. The temple of God ultimately was never a building. It was a place, but the gathering place 
was intended to be conducive for worship of God by a people set apart for righteousness, set apart for holiness. In verse 22 of our text in John 2, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They believed the Old Testament, and they believed the New Testament declaration of Jesus in the moment. The immature believer, the one who's truly saved but can't quite articulate the gospel as well as he would like. We ask that person to write it down. Let us help you. Let us shepherd you through the process of understanding what the gospel is. And if it's missing the resurrection, it's not the gospel. Why? The resurrection is the hope of eternal life in the gospel. He not only believed his disciples, they not only remembered what he had said, they chose to believe in the moment what the scripture had said in the Old Testament, but also what he was saying in the moment. And this was because of a constant exposure to truth. And as you know, there were those, and there was one in particular who had this same constant exposure to truth, and he rejected it. It's not just a matter of being taught. I mean, there are plenty of people who sit under sound teaching for years, and they just reject it. They walk away, and and they do everything they can to influence others to reject it. Again, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in Him. It is about what is written. Like the man in Mark 9 with the child who had a demon. Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief, right? So to think that somehow that the distinction between the believer and the unbeliever is so black and white that there's no room for spiritual growth is not reality. Belief is very fragile in the beginning. The object of the belief is solid as a rock. It is a rock. But the belief is weak. It needs teaching. It needs counsel. Oh, it needs discipleship. Be it known, be certain, the person who has zero interest in discipleship has zero interest in Christ. He can play a pretty good game often. He can say a lot of things that will make, especially those who know nothing about Christianity, he can do a lot to convince people outside the church that he really has some sort of devotion to Jesus Christ. But if he's got no devotion to discipleship, he does not have any interest in Jesus Christ. the power of the resurrection to come that you see displayed in this act. And Jesus brings it back to the resurrection. You destroy it, I'll I'll raise it up three days. I alone have the authority to lay down my life and take it up. That's the hope of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 says, in the words of Paul, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. 
then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Without the resurrection, you ought to be pitied. It's a little bit awe-striking, isn't it? When you consider this essential reality and the fact that so few pulpiteers want anything to do with it. And maybe those who are most deceived and most deceiving are those who come to the brink of the resurrection and talk of a fullness about the atonement of the cross and do nothing to tell people what happened three days later. The miracle of the resurrection. It is the power of Jesus' deity in his resurrection from the dead that you see as the focal point in that section of Scripture. Without the resurrection... You simply have an angry preacher who decides to get upset about some people who are selling some stuff in the temple. It's about the resurrection. Well, third, the power of Jesus' deity in his reading of men's hearts, quickly in verses 23 to 25. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Of course they did. They were miracles. Who wouldn't follow a miracle worker? As far as they knew, he was a great magician. This is amazing. Why wouldn't they keep tabs on all of the mighty works he would do? But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Go back and look at verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. They believed in his name, but there was no connection. It doesn't say they entrusted themselves to him. It doesn't say that they repented and believed in the gospel. That's Jesus' command. They believed he existed. They even believed that he was God. But he didn't entrust himself to them. Why? He knew all people. Needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Why? Well, he created him. He's omniscient. The woman that we'll look at in John 4. Why was she convinced of his deity? Because in her words, he told her everything there was to know about her. He not only knew the condition of her heart, he knew her past. Not because he observed it, but because he is God. Jesus knows the contents of man's heart. He doesn't need anybody to tell him. He needed no one to bear witness about man. He was reading men's hearts because he knew how to do it. In Luke 7, 36... One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. He went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, didn't say it out loud, 
He said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Years ago when I was a youth pastor, I remember walking around the corner early in the morning before church started. This was back in Houston, the little church I was at. There was a gal who served in our ministry, and she smoked, smoked a lot. But she really didn't want me to know that she smoked. And as I came around the corner, she had just taken a large puff. And quickly, the cigarette went behind her back, and I said, good morning, Mary. She said, good morning. I said, how's it going? Fine. And I thought, this is probably a good opportunity to minister to Mary. So I'll just stay here and talk to her for a while. (laughs) Well, it didn't take long before Mary had turned around and puffed out that smoke in the opposite direction rather than in my face, fortunately. And certainly I had no idea what was in her heart, as Jesus knew about Simon, but certainly I caught her off guard with no intention to do so. Simon was caught off guard. Say it, teacher. He goes on to explain that a moneylender had two debtors. That moneylender chose in his wisdom to display righteous judgment. He says one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I supposed for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. In righteous judgment, there are certainly those who will have greater gratitude because much more has been forgiven. You've judged rightly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. All standard practices done in New Testament Jerusalem for a house guest. He very insolently did not do those standard practices. She, on the other hand, went further, went beyond what the expectation was. You didn't give me water to drink. She washed my feet with it. In fact, her tears. You didn't kiss me, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't give me oil for my head. She's poured out her expensive oil on my feet. So, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. Her love for the Savior proved her having been forgiven. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus read this man's heart like an open book. And he displayed it before him. And he didn't care. Didn't care had no impact on him at all. This is the power of the deity of Jesus Christ to read men's hearts. And in this very moment, he's reading your heart. He knows it inside and out. His eyes go to and fro. Nothing escapes the vision of the Lord. The power of the deity of Jesus Christ in 
His righteousness shared with the Father was displayed in His willingness to cleanse the house. The power of Jesus' deity and His resurrection from the dead was displayed so that God's glory would be on display and that unredeemed sinners would be redeemed and experience eternal life. The power of Jesus' deity in His reading of men's hearts takes place today. I don't know your heart, but the God of heaven whose son was executed for the sake of his glory, that righteousness would be on display, knows your heart. And now's a great time to get your heart right, because you can. And it's a matter of trusting the sovereign work of God the Father to ensure that his son's Life on the cross would be given as a sacrifice, according to Acts 2, predetermined by God, committed at the hands of evil men. And that in so doing, all who would trust him for forgiveness of sins, for his death, and for victory over sin in his resurrection would experience eternal life. Father, we rejoice when we look at such rich, lavish love poured out on undeserving sinners. And God, we want to plead with you that you would expose any and every nuance of legalism in our hearts that might cause us to think that we somehow achieved your favor, but that through the work of our Savior, the God-man who in his deity cleansed the temple as a man, and who in his deity was resurrected from the dead as a man, and in his deity read the hearts of men as a man, believing that he does so today. Lord, we plead with you that in each of our hearts, you would give us the humility and the wisdom, that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that you would replace dead hearts with living hearts, hearts of stone with hearts of flesh, that what Christ reads in our hearts would be exactly what we know to be true of our hearts rather than our willingness to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and color it and dismiss it as if it's not significant. God, we plead with you now to give us purity of heart as we worship Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name.